Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time with family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, for, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. I, I just want to start uh, with, with, with a testimony here, um, kind of open up. Uh, I, some of you know this, uh, some of you don't, but uh, back in uh, about 2014, uh, I had this, this just this burning desire to, to know uh, the Word of God uh, better than I did. Um, to, I, I'd been growing, uh, but, but I wanted to take it to the next level, so to speak. Uh, so I decided to uh, go to Bible college. Um, yeah, I'd already graduated uh, college with, with a bachelor's, um, and, and I was working and, and doing all that, but I, I decided to go back to school for my master's, and not because I wanted a master's, but I just wanted to get trained in knowing and understanding the Bible better. So, as I said, in 2014, I entered my first semester of seminary. And one of my earliest memories uh, is in my Old Testament survey class. Uh, and reading that textbook, um, it, I have it here, actually. This was my textbook. I didn't save all of them. I saved a handful of them. Um, I'm glad I saved them. but I saved them back in the day uh, for a different reason than I'm glad I saved them now. And I'll kind of allude to that in just a moment. But I, I was doing some required reading for the, for the class, and just in the first few pages of the book, um, as I was reading, the words began to cast doubt and speculation on certain uh, main, the manuscripts of Moses, known as the Pentateuch. Um, called the Pentate um the first five books of the bible and, and so i'm just reading this and i didn't think much about it after all i was uh i was new uh to this whole thing but um i want to share with you uh just a short excerpt real quick of what i'm talking about um this is mind you a, a seminary a old testament survey college textbook that seminary training uh, men and women uh, to be leaders, uh, men to be pastors, uh, training people in the faith. And, and this is what I read on page 23 of my textbook. 
uh, inerrancy, I'm quoting to you, inerrancy, which is freedom. Hey, what is going on? <laughs> Goosebumps. Okay, look at that. Man, wow. Um, errancy, I'll Pastor Frank have, was holding up the same book for those who weren't aware. So, so here's the quote. In, uh, inerrancy, or freedom from all error, is necessary only in the original manuscripts of the biblical books. I want to make sure you heard that. Inerrancy is necessary only for the original manuscripts of the biblical books. They must have been free from all mistakes, or else they could not have been truly inspired by the, by the God of truth in whom in, is no darkness at all. God could never have inspired a human author of scripture to write anything erroneous or false. To say that God could not use fallible man as an instrument of his infallible truth is an illogical or is as illogical as to insist that an artist can uh, never produce a valid painting because his brush is capable of slipping. Okay, but he says, what about the text of the Bible as we now possess it? Is that text necessarily free from all mistakes of every kind? Great question. Not when it comes to copyist errors, for we certainly do find discrepancies among the handwritten copies that have been preserved to us. I want to reiterate that. I want to reiterate that. The text says, when it, uh, we certainly do find discrepancies among the handwritten copies that have been preserved to us, even those that come from the earliest centuries. Some slips of the pen may have crept into the first copies made from the original manuscripts and additional errors of a transmissional type could have found their way into the copies of copies. It is almost unavoidable that this should have been the case. No one alive can sit down and copy out of the text any, an, uh, an entire book without a mistake of any kind. Those who doubt this statement are invited to try it themselves. It would take nothing short of a miracle to ensure the inerrancy of a copy of an original manuscript. Well, to that, I would say, duh, because is, is it not a miracle that God is able to preserve his word? Uh, yes, it is. So I'm just sitting there reading this, and, and today I'm, I'm angry at that. But back then, I didn't really think much about it. And so I'm going through school, and another memory that I have uh, is in my systematic theology class. And the instructor teaching me uh, is teaching me that, that man is not triune, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, he is teaching me uh, that the soul and the spirit are the same thing, and, and he is teaching that the Bible Really, though it says three different entities, uh, we are really a dual being as opposed to a triune being as the Lord is. Uh, even though Scripture plainly teaches that man has a spirit, soul, uh, and, and body uh, separately in multiple distinct places. Uh, but I didn't think much about it at the time. After all, I'm just wanting to learn the Bible. Uh, by the way, this is that same theology class that I learned that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the Bible are the same kingdom. Uh, even though they're different words and they have different meanings and they are defined by the Bible as two different kingdoms. Then I remember taking a class on the book of Revelation. And uh, I, I sit before you tonight, not remembering of that time, not remembering the biblical summation of how to rightly divide the book of Revelation. I, I did not walk away with, with that. I do not remember that. I remember this book. And this book uh, is a book called, uh, do you have this one too, Pastor Frank? <laughs> three Views on the Millennium and Beyond. And basically, it's composed of three different authors and editor who got three different views of the millennium, 
of the premillennialist view, the postmillennialist view, and the amillennialist view. And um, there's just a quick little excerpt that I want to read out of here for you, and it's really just a sentence, not not a paragraph like the other one. And what I what what I'm so upset about is that this book, the author says, uh, he he presents the three views. He says, I will not try to resolve the debate within my concluding essay. So he 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 line out, uh, lines up all the information, all the the, the three different views, and then he kind of concludes it at the end. Uh, he says, I will not try to resolve the debate, uh, but will articulate the hermeneutical, theological, and exegetical issues at the center of the discussion of this topic and the disagreements that arise from it. So he 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 doesn't even um, though he says what theological perspective he holds, he doesn't outrightly define and rightly divide the word of god for us if someone reads this they're just left thinking oh there's pros and cons to all three views and so i left that class with, with this book in hand and, and with that uh ingrained in my memory and and then i remember um uh going through um another class a, a class on um a hermeneutics how to how to study the Bible. And I just want to read a quick sentence out of this one for you. I'm going to hold this up just in case Pastor Frank has this book, but this is called Grasping God's Word. And I took this class um, at the time, one of my favorite classes. Uh, felt like I was going to learn so much from it. And I even, I'm opening it up for you, and I even underlined it, and I wrote the word look with an exclamation point. So you would look. So you can see, and I'm going to read this to you, in spite, I'm quoting, in spite of the many good Bible translations available to us, there is no such thing as a perfect translation. End quote. Uh, but, but listen, listen, this is what's going on today. This is, uh, this is what I was told uh, in the way of a personal testimony. This is what, what pastors and preachers are, 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 are um, unfortunately, I think believing today is that you've got to get a better handle on the Greek and the Hebrew, and you'll never truly understand the Bible unless you have that knowledge. And there are some places uh, you'll hear often where a better word could have been used or should have been used. And, and there are a few places where they may have, um, there may have been a scribe who somewhere along the way put his own comments in there, and and and, and that's different than the original manuscripts. And and the problem is that that is so deceitful because they will tell you that you have everything you need to be saved and that you can help people grow and all that. But th the problem is they're not coming out with, with horns and, and fire. They're not coming out and just saying to death with the Bible. What, what they're saying is you can trust the Bible for the most part. But really, the original manuscripts are really where it's – and so you, you, you leave churches, you leave seminaries, uh, you leave with, with a Bible under your arm, uh, and you don't have an absolute authority at all in this world. You're not a bad guy. Uh, you still love the Lord. You're still growing. God is using you, but you don't realize that you truly don't have an absolute authority, and, and that's what happened to me. Uh, that's my story. And quite honestly, about four years ago, uh, I got my absolute authority back. I got my book back. Uh, and when that happened, y'all, everything changed for me. My mindset changed. My attitude changed. My preaching changed. 
uh, I don't know for the better or the worse. That's I don't know, but it changed my my view of the Bible changed. My view of God changed, y'all. And listen, somewhere and somehow, every single person who sets their life on following this book can bet that Satan will do something to undermine the authority of this book in your life. I mean, we saw it in Genesis last week, right? Before you even get to the third chapter, Satan is showing up to counter God's word and God's plan. And through Israel's history, as God is moving, Satan is right there to counter, counterfeit, and confound that plan. The New Testament opens, and God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ, and he begins his earthly ministry and immediately shows up uh, personally. And at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 4, Satan shows up right there to counter God's plan. And all through the Gospels, as Jesus works miracles and speaks truth of who he is, Satan is right there through scribes and Pharisees uh, and priests uh, to counter that plan. All through Acts, as we saw last week, um, you, you would have to have had a Bible college education to miss it. Uh, God moves one way, and Satan counters another. And that's all that history really is, tracing the movement of God to fulfill his plan and tracing the movement of Satan to counter that plan. And so, so I want to just talk briefly about this attack of the Word of God uh, in every believer's life, where I believe your, your notes uh, pick up. Um, because you don't miss this. If you're ever going to see the movement of God, and if you're ever going to see the movement of the devil, you cannot ignore Satan's devices. You, you have to know how he operates. And, and I'm going to tell you tonight a little bit about how he operates. And some of you are going to agree with me, and some of, some of you may disagree with me. And I'm okay with that. But I'm going to show you. And, and it's on you, and it's on me to look into this. Check this thing out. Because what he does is he runs the same play over and over and over. And he's done that for the last 6,000 years of human history. And we've talked about this for a couple of weeks now. It's to question the Word of God, to change the Word of God, and to reinterpret the Word of God. So uh, God sends a warning. This, this is interesting. God sends a warning to each of the seven churches in the New Testament about this very thing. To the church at Rome in Romans 16, verses 17 through 18, he tells, us to, he tells them to mark those, by the way, which cause divisions and offenses that are contrary not to our emotions, not to our preferences, but to the doctrine which you have learned, and to avoid them. And then he says down there uh, in verse 18, they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Watch this. And by good words and fair speeches deceive the heart of the simple. So that's what I'm saying. It's not with like obviously evil words and, and, and corrupt speech. It's with good words and fair speech that is happening. To the Corinthians, um, the same thing. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not as... Many, there were many in that first century which corrupt the word of God. In chapter 4 and verse 2, he says again, uh, we have renounced the hidden things of, of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. So, so it's not those that handle a different book. So not a different religion. It's not, it's handling the, the word of God, but doing so deceitfully and corrupting it to the, to the Galatians. 
uh, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We talked about this last week. Paul marvels that so soon that these, these believers in Galatia have been uh, turned uh, uh, to another gospel. It's called a gospel, friends. But it is a perversion of the gospel of Christ. They are perverting the gospel of Christ in the first century. Here we are in the 21st century. And, and we don't think that that's happening with those who claim to, to uh, genuine people who claim to love the Bible. I, I think we ought to take a step back and look at that. Uh, to the Ephesians, he says there in uh, Acts uh, of the Ephesians, he says in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, Paul says, I know this. I know it, I know it, and he's, he calls a group of pastors, a group of leaders in the ministry, and he says, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, also of your own selves, men like you, Paul says, out of this group, men shall arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. To the Philippians in chapters 1 and 3, verses 18, that he, he talks about Christ being preached in pretense uh, with, with, a, with a, a falsity, with error, wrong doctrine. In chapter 3, 18, he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. They are enemies. This is Bible. This isn't me calling names. This is the Bible, as it says in Romans, marking them. To the Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 4, he says that it is possible for any man, mind you, any person to beguile you with enticing words. Again, words that, that, that uh, satisfy our itching ears. Uh, and then to the Thessalonians there, those believers in Thessalonica, uh, he, he, we talked about this last week, that uh, the Thessalonians were receiving the letters from Paul as, as truth, as from God and not from man. And so Satan gets wind of this. And by the time that uh, he writes his second letter, he has to tell them, whoa, listen, there are some people that are sending you some letters that seem to be from us and they're not, and you're taking them as the word of God. So it's being disguised as truth. It has God's name all over it, but it's not. And so he says, um, do not be deceived by, by spirit or don't be troubled by spirit or by word or by letter as from us. Let no man deceive you by any means. And listen, his strategy, Satan's strategy, has always been the same, to cause confusion, question, doubt about the Word of God. And it's important that you know that. We've seen it all through the Bible, uh, we, we, even through this particular study. Um, even though this is about church history, and we'll get there, I promise, uh, I skipped last week most all of church history. We went back, or we went from the book of Acts to talking about what's going on today in the 21st century. We, uh, century. we skipped all the history part, all right? About 2,000 years of history we have skipped, and we'll, we'll go back through that. But, but I, want to know why, I want you to know why we did that uh, for two reasons. Number one, I want to make sure that you are convinced that Satan's strategy has not changed. I showed it to you back in the garden. In the Old Testament, through the churches, in the New Testament, we saw how the issue today has unfolded. Um, and I showed you those different um, um, sta 
excuse me, statements of belief uh, that, that churches like to put up on their website and seminaries put up about the original manuscripts. I mean, we talked a little bit about that. We'll get into more detail tonight about that. But, but I want you to see, and, I, and we need to be looking for how he's done this through church history, number one. Number two, I want to make sure you understand what the real issue in Christianity today is. Because what we've been learning for the last month is what Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 15 says. Specifically, you can't know where you are unless you know where you've been. Okay, And we unpack that in great detail in our first two messages of this study posted on our website. And so the issue in Christianity is um, absolute authority of the Word of God. That's what it is. And exactly where is that inspired Bible? Because God promised he would preserve it. And I'll show that to you tonight. So we have to ask, where is it? Because, you see, to study church history is to study the development of the Bible. And so last week, I brought up this whole thing going on in Christianity today. And we saw that 95% of fundamental Bible-believing, self-professed Bible-believing churches and universities believe the inspired Bible is in the original manuscripts or the original writings, but it is not necessarily found in any translation. And I wanted to bring that up because 95% of Christians would have a difficult time explaining why you believe you truly have the inspired, preserved word and words of God. Like, how do you prove that? And these, these churches and these universities, like, we're not hating on them. We're not mad at them necessarily or specifically. It's not like that. And they would tell you that we believe in authority and the preservation of the word of God and the inspiration of the word of God. But we said last week, if you really sit down with them and get to the bottom line, we find that that, that, that um, inspiration and that preservation, so to speak, preservation, uh, is in the original writings or maybe in the original languages. I just read to you three different or showed you three different textbooks uh, that, that, I, that I have that, uh, that say that very thing. That's what I was taught. And so I think this study that we're doing has, has been pretty well received uh, by our people thus far, and I'm grateful for that. But, but as I've said every week, I'm afraid in, in a few weeks you're going to start asking, oh, why is it we have to learn all this stuff? You're going to get tired of me, okay? But we've got to learn where we came from. We've got to know why and how uh, you can really know that, that you can have and do hold an absolute authoritative inspired word of God today. Because if you don't know that, the time will come when, when through that, Satan will take away what you believe. You may believe all the right stuff, but if you don't know why you believe it, you're a prime target for Satan to undermine the authority of the Word of God in your life. And as one of the pastors of this church, I feel it is my responsibility to make sure that every single person in this church has a Bible that they can trust as the final and absolute authority for your life. And I want you to know why you believe that very statement. And I want you to know that so that Satan, in all of his craftiness and deceit and subtlety, cannot take that away from you. Because I know the difference that it can make in your life when you get to that point. Because it made a difference in my life. And so listen, if Satan attacked Eve, in that area, and he attacked the nation of Israel in that area, and he attacked every church in the New Testament in that area, then something tells me he is going to attack you and me in that area. 
he's going to. Remember, he runs the same play over and over. And when he does that, or, or if he has done that, I want you to know why you can have a Bible that you can trust. And that's why we skipped all that period of time in church history. I want you to see what's going on. I want to make sure that you know why we're talking about this. Because the real issue isn't what version of the Bible you use. All right? I want you to listen to that statement. The issue isn't what version of the Bible you use. The issue is, do you have an absolute authority for your life? And, watch, if you're going to have an absolute authority for your life, you need to find out what version it's in. Because we talked last week very briefly about if you put two versions of the Bible side by side, they will tell you very different things, my friends, in many, many areas. It's just true. And if you go down through church history and you can track the movement of God and the movement of Satan and you can find uh, you find one that's different than the other. Um, I'm talking about uh, the, these um, translations, these versions. If you can find one that's different than the other, that, than the one that I'm using, uh, then, man, my hat's off to you. Go for it. That's great. Then you've got an absolute authority. But I'll tell you what. Listen, the more I learn about church history myself, I'll tell you, I believe the one I've got in my hand is the absolute authority, friends. It's it. Are you hearing me? And so listen, we're not bringing this up so we can become great debaters about all the different versions that are out there. We don't have time for that, right? We've been called to preach the gospel. We've been called to make disciples of Christ. We don't have time to argue with Christians about what Bible they're using. That's not why we're studying this. But I will tell you this, you will never fulfill the Great Commission the way God intended it to happen unless you do have an absolute authority. So this is so important. It's not just knowledge for us to know, which is why it's important. This is important for us today. It's very practical. And maybe that's why Christianity today has all the technology in the world available to it. Right? Think about that. All kind of Christian stuff is coming out of the radios and the TVs and satellites and books and videos and hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of English translations of the Bible, Bible on computer, and on and on. But for some reason, there's less happening for God today compared to the last several hundred years when all they had was the mere printing press. We've got all this stuff, but you know what we don't have? We don't have an absolute authority. And maybe that's why there isn't much going on for God in this country today. Because over the last several hundred years, Satan has run the slickest campaign not to be matched by any other than what he did back in the garden. And at least Adam and Eve knew what happened to them when Satan did what he did. They saw what happened. They knew. Today, we've got Christians that are walking around, unfortunately, clueless about what has happened and what is happening. The belief that the Word of God is locked up in the original manuscripts has taken the Bible out of our hands and left them with a message, or those people that, that tend to believe this, has left them with the message of God. It's given us the ideas and, and the thoughts of God, but we don't have His words. Now, when we get into the study of church history proper, we're going to answer all these questions about the Word of God and what's been going on and, and how it got to us and all that. But there are a few things that we need to cover today 
uh, before we move on uh, in the coming weeks, uh, before we go through those 20 uh, centuries of history. And, and so uh, I want to make sure that you have those answers before we walk through that time. So, so we need to ask this question uh, that we posed uh, last week, I think. Are we really sure, friends, that God intended for us, did he even intend for us to have an inspired, infallible, inerrant standard in our words? Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like a perfect standard, a perfect version, a perfect word. No errors, no mistakes, no contradictions, uh, nothing. Did God even intend for that? And, and if you ask mainstream Christianity today in its various forms, they will tell you, well, no. That's not what God intended. The, the real inspired word, as we said, uh, is in the originals because it was the writers that were inspired when they actually wrote the originals. And the truth is this book is not an original manuscript. It's not even a direct translation from, from an original manuscript, uh, manuscript. As a matter of fact, there has never been and never will be a book that is comprised of original manuscript. Okay? All the originals are gone. That's, and some of that is true, yeah. But what I, wanna, I don't care what Christianity says. I don't care what man, myself included, says. What does the Bible say? And I want you to notice some things about the Word of God here, uh, about what God says. First of all, in Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, he says, it says, stand up, and I'm, I'm there in the middle of verse 5, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. He says, man, the name of the Lord is exalted above all blessing and all praise. And, and I kind of put your, the blanks there if you're taking notes. I put those there in bold for you. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, uh, God hath also hath highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him, Jesus, a name which is above every name. Jesus holds the name that is above every name that has been, is, and will be. To the glory of God the Father, every knee will bow at that name one day. What a name. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us there is salvation in no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved, right? There is no other name, right? And we can go on and on about uh, how God feels and what God thinks about his name. And, and I think we would amen that till the cows come home. But I think it's obvious the, the premium and the exalted position that God gives his name as he should. And so in light of those verses, I want you to note what God says in Psalm 138, verse 2. Now, as we read this, remember what he says about his name. It says, the psalmist says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. So God is magnifying his word above his name and his name is above all blessing and praise and honor and glory. And at that name, every knee will bow. And, and there's no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. But even above his name, there's something. God says that himself. He, he not me, hopefully me, but he has magnified his word above his name. And listen, if that's the way God feels about his name, 
would he allow his word, which is exalted ab- above his name, and that says about his name, that should say above his name, would he allow his word to be lost in original manuscripts today that don't even exist? The same original manuscripts that, that, that are gone, the same ones that are comprised of languages that over 99% of this world's population do not and will ever not ever know, nor will any of us sit under the teaching of anyone who does. Are we to believe that is what God has done with his word that he has exalted above his name? That he so obviously and clearly puts a premium on? It doesn't make logical or biblical sense for that matter. Listen, God has exalted his word above his name because the only way you'll ever exalt his name is by how he has revealed himself to us through his word. And so if you don't have the word of God, then you don't know why you should praise him. You don't know how to praise him. You don't even know how to be saved for that matter if we don't have the word of God, the true and the not just the word, but the words of God. So what exactly is the word of God? What does John chapter 1, 1 and John 1, 14 say, right? I think many of us know this, uh, but don't look past it. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, and we know based on verse 14 that that word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us. He was full of grace and truth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we see that he is the word of God. The incarnate word, who is Jesus, took the written word and he chose to reveal himself to us through the written word. That's how he does it. That's why his word is so important. That's why it ought to be so precious to us. And I want to show you something that the written word promises concerning the incarnate word. So something the Bible promises about promises us about Jesus. In Acts thirteen thirty seven, we see that uh, it promises us that Jesus has never and will never see corruption. In Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, the psalmist says the same thing. Neither, uh, he says, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So, so look at that, that, that promise of the word of God, the written word of God, about the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, what promises? So do you mean to tell me that, that God would not allow the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, to be corrupted, and then he would take the written word that he uses to reveal all the things that we know about Jesus and just leave us with nothing but a corrupted translation? That that has to be the definition of stupidity. For God to say, listen, I'm not going to leave my son to see corruption, but the written word, well, what's the big deal? All that does is reveal the incarnate word, so it's okay if that gets corrupted. Uh, (laughs) That's not logical. It's not biblical. And just as the written word promises that the incarnate word will not see corruption, the Bible is full of promises from the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, about him uh, not letting the written word see corruption, right? Uh, So let's look at the promises of Christ concerning the written word. Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, friends. His words, plural, are pure. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, mind you. 
Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt, watch it, preserve them from this generation forever. Thou shalt preserve, what's the them? Thou shalt preserve your words, Lord, from this generation. How long? Forever. The last time I checked, forever doesn't get lost in original manuscripts. And, and, and I, I don't have the time to tell you, but you ought to look for yourself at, at what, what, what certain other versions of the Bible do with Psalm 12, 6, and 7. Because just in a nutshell, what they'll do is it's not the words that he's preserved in those versions. It goes back to verse 5, and it's the poor and the needy that he's preserved. It's a very interesting and sad thing, by the way. Luke twenty one thirty three: heaven and earth shall pass away, he says, but my words <laughs> shall not, shall not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 24-25, man, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. Psalm, not 119, 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Not one is left behind. Then why was I reading in those seminary textbooks that I learned from why was I reading those words that I read if the Bible tells me something different? These are the scholars that, 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 that people are going to to study church history, to learn the Bible, to get uh, a degree or whatever, to become a pastor and or, you know, all that stuff. Psalm, or, excuse me, Isaiah 40, verse 8, very similar. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. John 10.35, the scripture, he says, cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. And John 12.48 tells us that the word, Jesus says, the word that I have spoken to thee, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And by the way, I, wanted, I want you to note in the first part of that verse, uh, he that rejecteth me receiveth not my words. So, so both singular word and pl words plural. But he says, the word that I've spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And, and I want to ask you, how can the words that he spoke judge us in the last day if that word is really only in original manuscripts that have since been destroyed? How will a holy, just, and perfect God judge us by his words and never give us access to those words today in a preserved form because they're locked up in some original manuscripts that don't exist. So the question is, where are these words, O oh Lord? And I want us to look at, um, oh, I think I may have uh, skipped something, so I'm going to go ahead and give this to you if this is in your notes. I think it is. Um, I, I didn't put this up here. Uh, but you'll be told this, and we'll get to this part in a second, so you'll be told that the Word of God has been preserved in the original languages, uh, but is it impossible for you to have those actual, literal, inspired words in a translation, right? So 
original languages is the first blank, translation is the second blank. Because, and here's the rationale, because in translating from one language to another, it is impossible to have a word-for-word -word translation. Which I will concede. That is true. There are some words in one language. Yes. Yes, I will be happy to. Uh, the word of God has been preserved in the original languages is the first blank or the first couple there, original languages. But it is impossible for you to have those actual, literal, inspired words in a translation. Translation is that blank there. And here's why. Because in translating from one language to another, it is impossible to have a word-for-word -word translation, word-for-word. -word. Okay, so there are some words. There are some words in one language uh, that, that just do not translate uh, into another language, um, and that's true. Uh, it is impossible for you to have a word-for-word -word translation. Languages just don't shake out like that. Um, so, man, I, I guess they got us there, huh? Well, in a sense, they do, right? Until someone grabs a Bible. Until someone goes to the words that God uses to reveal to us. And I know that goes against mainstream Christianity to go to the Bible for our authority, uh, but let's just act like we're doing that tonight. And I want to look at the Bible's answer concerning this thing of originals uh, versus translations. Um, so if you have your Bible, praise the Lord for that. And I put these verses and passages there for you, so hopefully uh, you, you can go to some of these. Um, but look at Genesis 42. Okay, uh, In Genesis 42, Joseph is being uh, reunited with his brothers uh, that sold him into slavery. Uh, but over the years, Joseph has worked through the ranks from slavery, uh, worked his way up, so to speak, to being the prime minister, essentially, over Egypt, and he is Pharaoh's right-hand man. Okay, uh, His brothers don't even recognize him. They think he's still a slave somewhere. And so they're coming to the prime minister of Egypt to get some food because there's a famine that has struck the land. And all his brothers, mind you, uh, represent the nation of Israel, right? The, those 12 brothers are the root of each of the tribes of Israel. And so what language do they speak? They speak Hebrew. Okay, so what language does Joseph speak? Well, Joseph speaks Hebrew, but he also speaks Egyptian, right? Because he's the prime minister of Egypt. <laughs> he's got to speak Egyptian. And you'll notice in chapter 42 of Genesis that when Joseph speaks to his brothers, he doesn't speak to them in Hebrew. He speaks to them in Egyptian, the language that his brothers don't know. How, how do I know they don't know Egyptian? Look there at verse 23. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. So the brothers are talking Hebrew amongst themselves, and they think Joseph is just some Egyptian guy. They don't think he knows uh, what they're saying because he's speaking in Egyptian to the interpreter, and the interpreter translates the Hebrew to the brothers and vice versa. But see, that presents a problem because in order to take the words that Joseph is speaking in Egyptian and make them a part of the original manuscript, what God had to do is translate from Egyptian to Hebrew in order to even put this conversation in the canon of Scripture. He has to do that to even get it in those original manuscripts. And this really makes a case because you have to ask yourself, what was it uh, that was actually inspired? Was it the actual words that Joseph spoke in Egyptian? 
Was it the Egyptians' interpreter's verbal translation of the word, or was it Moses' written translation when he wrote it down in Hebrew? See, listen, God has had, um, uh, ha God had to have it translated from Egyptian to Hebrew, and since you can't have a word-for-word -word translation between languages, when Moses wrote Joseph's translation to his brothers, they weren't Joseph's actual words. They were a translation of his words. But you know what you have to believe? You have to believe that when Moses penned those words, they, you have exactly what God wanted you to get. Right? I mean, does anyone have a problem with that? Uh, no. Right? We, we don't take that as anything but the word of God. Look at Exodus chapter 8. Uh, the Bible tells us that Moses uh, was raised in Egypt, right? Um, Pharaoh's daughter rescued him from the water, and she chose out Mo uh, Pharaoh's daughter, chose, picked Moses' mother uh, in Egypt, and Moses grew up knowing both Egyptian and Hebrew. And look what it says in Exodus 8, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And the rest of the chapter, chapter 8, records that, that conversation, that dialogue. And listen, Pharaoh doesn't care one bit about God. And he doesn't care one bit about God's people. Do you think he would study the Hebrew language and take time to learn that language? No. So you know they had to be communicating in Egyptian. But when Moses wrote it all down, in Exodus, he wrote it in Hebrew. So you didn't, exact, you didn't get exactly what they said, did you? Because it was a translation from Egyptian to Hebrew. But you have to believe that when Moses wrote it, he wrote exactly, word for word, y'all, what God wanted him to write. So that you and I today could have exactly what God wanted us to have. And no one has problems uh, with the translations from, from Egyptian to Hebrew. From those originals... What about Acts chapter 22? Um, it's getting toward the end of Paul's life here, and he's speaking to, to a group of people. Um, and, and real quick, we'll check out chapter 21 first. Um, Paul says, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak to the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew. And, and then we, we see chapter 22 is the testimony that Paul spoke before the people. But he spoke to them in Hebrew. But when the Holy Spirit of God inspired Luke to write it down, Luke wrote it in Greek. Because the New Testament is written in Greek. So what Paul said was translated from Hebrew to Greek. So again, we don't have the exact word-for-word -word translation of what Paul said. But, again, there isn't a person within the sound of my voice that doubts what Luke wrote is the inspired word of God. But listen, in order for it to be inspired, they had to be translated first because he wrote them in Greek from the Hebrew. And so what we're finding out here is that God has always dealt with this thing of translating from original languages, right? That's the point that we're illustrating tonight. And, and really what we're seeing is it's not that hard for God to handle that task. He just has a way of working through those issues, right? Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel 
uh, interprets the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his dreams, right? Daniel interprets those dreams for him. And when Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, he spoke to him uh, not in Hebrew like a good Jew. He spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in the Chaldean language, which was the language of the Babylonians, right? The people with which he was taken captive. But it was written in Hebrew. It had to be translated in order to make it to the original. In the book of Jonah, it's the same deal. God calls out Jonah to preach against the wickedness of Nineveh uh, and the impending wrath of God for their sin. And in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, he spoke in the language of the Ninevites. That wasn't a Jewish nation. That was a Gentile nation. But when they were penned, they were recorded in Hebrew, not the language of the Ninevites. See, listen, God has a way of preserving his word through translations, friends. And I want to make sure that we all understand that what we're talking about here. So, so let's just, we talk about inspi- inspiration and preservation. So just in your notes here, if you want to jot down a few things, that kind of just maybe put it in hopefully an easy to understand way. Inspiration compared with preservation. So the components of inspiration are this, very simple. Here's what inspiration is. God to a man to a blank sheet of paper. And, of course, God is dictating what he wants written, right? That is inspiration. Uh, and then a preservation is very similar, right? You have um, – let me get here. There it is. Uh, God to a man, the words God has already written, and another blank sheet of paper. And that's the principle of the components of preservation, And the argument against, and it's that simple, friends, inspiration, preservation. And the argument against preservation, right, there's there's not an argument in Christian circles about inspiration. It's really about preservation. And the argument is you can't trust sinful men to preserve God's inspired word. And what's interesting is the same people that say they agree that what God inspired his word, or excuse me, the same people that will say or they'll agree with what that God inspired his word through sinful men are the same people that will say that he can't preserve his word through sinful men. Like it doesn't make sense. If he can inspire his word through sinful men, can he not preserve his word through sinful men? And, and by the way, to me, inspiration sounds a lot more difficult to accomplish than preservation. Like to, to inspire something, I think is uh, that's out of nothing. It is a little bit more difficult to, to preserve something that's already inspired furthermore why would god go through all that trouble think about this why would he go through all that trouble to inspire his words if he wasn't going to preserve them and why would he give the people closest to christ those in the first century those who heard the lord with their ears that spoke to him with their mouths that saw him with their eyes why would he inspire and just preserve a perfect word in the originals for them, but leave us, who were 2,000 years removed, with nothing but some original manuscripts that are nowhere to be found, and at best, a book that's potentially filled with mistakes and scribal commentary. Well, we're just not sure if God really said this at the end of Mark 16. Check your Bibles. 
See it? The last part of Mark 16 is there. And compare that with others. Uh, well, we're just not sure um, that this, this event in Acts, chapter 8 and verse 37, happened with that Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, we're just not sure if First John chapter 5, verse 7 belongs there. Listen, that doesn't make sense. It goes contrary to God's nature. Why would God even inspire his word in the first place? He, he would inspire it so we could have it all, right? Fully and completely without error. And he did the same thing when he preserved it. He would preserve it so we could have it fully and completely without error. Listen, that is the issue. It's not, the issue is not originals. I don't care what anyone says. I, I, I don't care. It has never been the originals. Look at Jesus himself, Luke chapter 4. Jesus is about to fulfill one of the prophecies from the book of Isaiah. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, and, and we cannot mess this up, okay? So, so or Jesus can't mess this up, right? This is like him coming on the scene, fulfilling biblical prophecy, the incarnate word of God. It's a big deal. He's about to fulfill the written word of God. And look what he says here, Luke 4, 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been, uh, Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is a portion that you can find in Isaiah. And this is what he read. And this is what was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened to him. Okay, so stop right there. Does anyone listening right now believe that the scrolls of Isaiah that were handed to Jesus and those scrolls that Jesus read from were the original manuscripts? Were those the original ones that Isaiah himself penned so many centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years before? No one would even think to believe that. Watch this. Verse 21, And he began to say to them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So right here, we have Jesus, the living incarnate word of God, fulfilling scripture by reading something other than the original manuscripts. And he calls the copy that he read from scripture. Does Jesus not know that God only inspired the originals? I mean, what's up with that? He must not have been uh, to seminary yet and learned about that. Turn over to Acts chapter 17, right? You're familiar with this. We actually like to quote this a lot around here. Uh, Paul and Silas uh, came to preach the gospel in the synagogue to the Bereans in Thessalonica. And in chapter 17 there, verses 10 and 11, the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, right? Uh, who come, or, excuse me, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So man, the believer, the brothers, the brethren, uh, in Christ, they sent Paul and Silas to go preach to the Bereans, uh, to the Jews in the synagogue, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And, and to that we would say amen, 
But I want you to notice that those Koreans didn't ask for the originals. They took the copies that had uh, that they had, and that they trusted that the same God who inspired the originals was equally faithful and equally powerful enough and equally able to preserve His Word. And they determined through those copies whether or not the things Paul was saying was really true. And Luke, once again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls those copies Scripture. Listen, when you get to the point where you believe that the inspired words of God are locked up in the originals, friends, number one, you've lost your absolute authority. You don't have a Bible that you can trust. Reading these, some of these books, going through seminary, cause more doubt in my mind than anything else about the Bible. So number one, you've lost your, uh, your absolute authority if you get to the point where you believe the inspired words of God are locked up in the originals. Number two, the devil is well on his way to get you to deny in the word of God. Because if there is doubt cast on just a little bit, man, who knows where else doubt can be cast. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to wrap up in a few moments here. Um, I told you at the beginning it would be a little bit longer than normal, uh, so, so hang in there with me. Um, go to Genesis chapter 2 real quick. And this is not, listen, again, <laughs> this is not about us picking on people. This is not about us pushing a man-made agenda or, or just a, a denominational pet preference. This is not some old Baptist church yelling about some version of the Bible. Right? This, this is not what that is. This is about a final authority. That is the real issue. Okay, So uh, I mentioned Genesis 2. Uh, okay, So in Genesis 3, Satan, we know this in verse 1 there, he gets Eve to question the word of God. Uh, and, and I want to ask you this. Does Eve know the word of God? Well, yes, she knows the word of God. How does she know the word of God? Well, it's interesting because in Genesis 2.16, we see that God commanded the man, and he said, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. And so God gives the command not to Adam and Eve. He gives the command to Adam. Because it's not until a couple of verses later that God says, Whoa, whoa, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make and help meet for him. So when God gave the originals... When God gave the command, Eve wasn't around. And then you look in chapter 3 and verse 1, and that's where we see the serpent who was more subtle than any beast of the field, uh, said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Listen, she's not even created when God gave that original word to Adam. How did she learn what God said? Adam got the original, and he gives a copy to Eve. Right, He verbalizes it to her. It's a copy, if you will. But she didn't get the original. She just got the copy. And because she didn't have the original and thought maybe, hmm, maybe the Word of God is locked up back somewhere in the originals, she began to say, oh, serpent, you mean dot, dot, dot? And, and I didn't know that dot, dot, dot. So Satan is essentially saying to Eve, if you had just been there when God gave the originals, then you would know what God meant. You would have his pure words. But since you weren't there to get his original manuscripts, you can't really know what he said. And that is exactly what's happening all over Christianity today. Us poor, common people, 
who don't know the original languages. So we've got to flock to the scholarly elite who know Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And they have to tell us what God said. And so I want to close this uh, with, with addressing this argument about uh, the, the word of God being preserved in heaven. Because this is important because someone comes along and says, well, the word of God isn't in the original manuscripts because Psalm 119.89 says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And yeah, that's true. It is settled forever in heaven. And, and But they'll say, that's where the word of God is. It's in heaven, not the originals, not in the book you're holding, heaven. So is that where we have to go to find something to base our lives on and to base our eternal souls on? I mean, if the Bible is our, is our source of everything that pertains to life and godliness, then we need a Bible here, and we need a Bible now. I, I, and I don't need one that's been filled with errors. I don't need one with words changed and verses taken out. I need something totally inspired, totally preserved, and totally infallible. I don't need God's thoughts. I don't need his ideas. I need his words. Do you doubt that? That you need every single one of his words? Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4 said, Man, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Listen, that's the kind of Bible that we need. And if heaven is the only place that that Bible is, then God has done an injustice. Because he said himself that I need every single word if I am going to be able to live my life for him. In John, oh, excuse me, First John chapter 3 and verse 2, it's interesting because uh, it says, oh, beloved, now are we the sons of God? Uh, it, it, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So according to 1 John 3, 2, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be like him. That means I need a perfect, inspired, preserved, infallible Bible a whole lot more now than I will when I get there, because I'm going to be like him when I get there. Why would God inspire a perfect word uh, here on earth and then cart that baby up to heaven to preserve it where folks don't even need it up there? Now, again, I do believe it's in heaven. He tells us that, but it's not locked up and preserved just in heaven. And unless you don't believe the Bible, you've got to believe that God has left us a perfect, preserved word today somewhere. God has never been caught up in original manuscripts, y'all. And when someone begins to uh, get like me, for instance, or, or, or Pastor Frank, or, or, or anyone else, like, like if someone begins to get authoritative about this issue, if someone begins to actually speak up about this issue that is so taboo about where the Bible actually is in the 21st century, people start to get uncomfortable. People start to get offended. People start to call you legalistic, closed-minded. Listen, God's English-speaking people in the 17th and 18th centuries didn't get uncomfortable about there being one authoritative, preserved, perfect word of God in that day. But something began to happen. And the, the, excuse me. Something began to happen 
when uh, the, some of those manuscripts <laughs> were found in that monastery in Mount Sinai. And one of those monks w was getting cold, and there was a trash can there with a bunch of worthless uh, papers, scraps in it. And in those scraps was a manuscript that just so happened a day earlier than the other manuscripts that, that, that we have today or, or that were around at the time. And because of the earlier date on that manuscript, along with another one, people began to say, in the best manuscripts, in the most reliable manuscripts, this passage is questionable. And some of you may be carrying versions of the Bible that have little notes in the margin that say, in the best or reliable manuscripts, dot, dot, dot. Something to that effect. And what happened is there were two, and I'm just going to brief you on this and we're done. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail. This is for a later time in church history study. But what happened, began to happen is there were two of the most godless men that you have ever met in your entire life that got hold of these older and best and more reliable manuscripts, and they compiled a Greek text from them. Most people don't realize that all through the history of the church, there were two lines of manuscripts that are able to be traced as clear as the nose on your face. And we will trace those lines, friends. And what those two men named Westcott and Hort, those were their last names, what they did is they, take that, they took that line of manuscripts that runs straight, and I'm not here to offend you, but I'm here to tell you the truth. That line of manuscripts that runs straight through the Catholic Church runs right back to origin. Uh, and we'll study about him if you don't know anything about him. Uh, it, go, it goes back to a school started by Philo in Alexander, Egypt, who was taking Greek philosophy and Christianity, and he was mixing the two of them and blending them. And friends, every single modern version of the Bible on the market today that is making millions upon millions of dollars, every single one has been translated from, from that line of manuscripts. It's a line of manuscripts that our early Christian brothers wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole with a Playtex rubber glove on the end of it. They didn't want any part of it. So much so that they went to the death for this book. They were holding on to the true word of God that he had preserved for them. And those are the manuscripts that all of them were dying for, that that other line of manuscripts that the King James Bible was translated from. And I want you to know that, that the name King James, by the way, didn't come along until around 1940 or so. Do you know what it was called before then? The Authorized Version. And that is what people use up until the turn of the century, the 1900s, when we got the corrupt line coming through. Now, I understand that that may throw some of us in a frenzy. Uh, that, that may cause you to look at me kind of weird or, or, or cause questions and, and whatever. Um, but you've got to really look at this thing. If you don't understand this issue, then you won't know why you have to learn this stuff of church history that we're going to be studying for the next year or so. And what Satan has done is realizing he couldn't crush the seed of the Word of God, he decided to join it. He couldn't stop it, so he decided to join it. So he starts flooding the airwaves with all this information coming in the form of Bibles today, um, or, or back then, and, and now today. And today we have a market uh, of Bibles for any and every taste 
and preference. And Christians everywhere are eating them up. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Christians, genuinely sincere, God-loving Christians, look at that and think, praise the Lord, what a move of God. And they call a move of Satan good. And we'll look at something that we're saying tonight to identify the move of God and call it evil. It's very scary. And, and, and again, Christians are eating this thing up without regard to the fact that all these Bibles say different things. And listen, if they all say different things, that means the words have been changed. Did you hear that? The words have been changed. And I hope that that bothers you after seeing what God said tonight about his words. Listen, God does not have hundreds of Bibles. He has one. Now, that Bible is in several different languages. I will concede that. But he has one. Listen, there are a lot of counterfeits. How many ways are there to God? One. A lot of counterfeits. And some will say about those of us who take this issue so seriously and take such a, a strong stand on this issue, don't you think that the devil is just using that to divide the body of Christ? And I'll say, yes, he absolutely is. He's been doing it for the last 120 years or so. And see, 120 years ago, there were... Uh, there was a complete unity about the inspiration and preservation of God's Word. So you tell me who's making the issue. You take the preface from many modern Bible versions, and you read that thing, and they make it seem like all they did was take the authorized version and make it easier to read. Friends, that is a godless lie. It is not the same. It is not the same line of manuscripts, and it is not from the same source. And you know what's interesting? You can make copies of this authorized version right here, and you can send it all over the world without any problems whatsoever. But you take every other version, and you copy that thing, and you'll be thrown in prison because those, copyrighted, because those versions are copyrighted. They're protected. Why would you copyright something? You would copyright it to make money, right? But, but how do you copyright God's word? I mean, whose words do they become once they're copyrighted? So listen, I'm going to pray. I, I, I don't want you to attack a Christian brother who holds another version of the Bible. I don't want you to think I'm doing that. That's not the issue. The issue is final authority. I want you to have something you can bank on. And if you're struggling with this thing, man, be like those Bereans and go back and check for yourself. And Father, I thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. I thank you for how you have inspired it, God, and how you have preserved it, and for the countless times in your Word that you promised that you will preserve your words. And so, God, I pray that, that anyone uh, who has heard this and does hear this on recording, regardless of where they stand on this issue, if they even know where they stand on this issue. God, I pray 
that you would lead them into all truth. And I pray that every man would be a liar and God would be true. God, give us a renewed a love and passion for your word, a zeal for your word, because, and a premium that we put on it, not just with our, our lips, but with our lives, because of the premium that you put on it. Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.